Hey, could you? Oh. Uh, I'll hold her for right now. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. When my mom gets here, just send her down. Um, can you grab me a marker? Another one? This one's dry. I think there may be a purple one on the pulpit. What's that, soccer? Football? Yes. 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 World Cups next week. It's going to be exciting times. And the Women's World Cup is this year, I think. Caleb's grabbing me another marker. This one is dying a slow death. Not so slowly, actually. Oh, glorious, yep. You. Much better. I think you'll be able to see this. Oh, look at that. You look like, like Superman Indio, Kathy. You look like, like Superman Indio. Hosea and Joel. Nice. Start prophecy this week. Is he knowing he's going upstairs? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Why is I know I stuck it in the middle. You set up. Your bag is going to come. Good morning. All right. Well, good morning. We're going to get started here. Uh, we have our teaching assistant of the day. Isla, she's really working on her knowledge of prophecy, especially through the book of Isaiah. Anything you'd like to say? Yeah. <laughs> um, so today we are going to be going through the book of Isaiah. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to that. Um, by way of next week, for next week's class, uh, Caleb is going to be going through the book of Hosea and Joel. Here's a breakdown for you of a reading schedule for the week. Um, Lane's every week when we do this, we... We uh, show people a, a way that they can read through at least the entirety of those books once. Usually, depending on the class, like Hosea this week, it was heavy reading. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed it. Everybody get through Isaiah? Yeah? Praise the Lord. <laughs> you did. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. So this week with uh, Hosea and Joel... It will be a lighter volume, but we will have more time to soak in on smaller chunks uh, of scripture. So I hope that that encourages you as you're reading the word this week. Oh, here. Well done. So this week, as we get started, I want you to talk to you guys just about an introduction to prophecy. Okay. How many of you guys have done any study through prophecy in the Old Testament? Okay, a little bit, a little bit, All right? Uh, it's usually closely related to apocalyptic literature as well. You know, people kind of study the two hand in hand. Today, we're just going to treat prophecy with just prophecy. And so I want to give you an illustration to start with. I think prophecy is like counseling, okay? Let's talk about a situation, right? Say you've got two friends that come to you and say, we need advice, okay? We're in the middle of a conflict. Something's going on between the two of us. As you listen to each person, you're diving right into the middle of a situation, okay? So we'll say, um, here's the conflict, right? You've got individual number one and individual number two, okay? Not only do you have two different individuals, you have what has happened before and what is going to happen in the future, Okay. Prophecy is a lot like that. We have both what we would call um, foretelling and foretelling in prophecy. Foretelling and foretelling. 
Okay, so fourth and four. And the idea behind these two concepts is prophets in the Old Testament were often reminding people, they were being forthright with the people of God, telling them of their situation, calling out their sin, and calling them to repentance. And if they didn't respond to that, they would be telling them what was to come into the future. Now, the foretelling of prophecy is not just all of the negatives of what could happen if they were unrepentant. It was also the promises of God that would be coming to life in what would be to come. So, let's think of the book of Isaiah. Can anybody tell me a prophecy that they know of right from the book of Isaiah? The virgin birth, okay. Stump of Jesse. Stump of Jesse. So let's look at the two ideas there, right? So I think the stump of Jesse is a really helpful one for this. <clears throat> so within the stump of Jesse, that's uh, Isaiah 11, right? Take a look. Isaiah chapter 11, yep, verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Okay, so within this chapter, who is the who is the root of Jesse to come? Jesus. Okay, so we would say Jesus is the root. I would definitely agree with that. Is that only a future promise? No, right? Because there was also a promise. Not just of Jesus to come, but also of, of Isaiah, actually. Oh, okay. Isaiah was going to have somebody born from his line. Thought, and the Lord would bring about his son through this. Right? So, do, you mean, do you mean David? See, David. I thought, I thought, yes, I David. Thought, Sorry, David. Yes. I said David. I'm thinking of uh, the chapter 7 with the virgin birth. So Isaiah would be promised the birth of a son, but that son was not by a virgin. But the, the two go hand in hand. You have immediate and future promises coming to realization in prophecy. So Isaiah and the prophetic books of the Old Testament are like counseling. You jump right into the middle of a situation in a context, and you have to look at what has happened before and what is going to happen to come. Okay? So keep that in your mind as we start to look at the book of Isaiah. Here you go, sweetie. Just going to duct tape it to yeah. your hand. There you go. <laughs> All right. You got it down there? Awesome. Okay. <clears throat> so while this illustration of prophecy being like counseling is helpful, it's not perfect. Okay. Um, when you jump into counseling, counseling situations show us that there are many overlapping situations. You're not going to just have one side or the other that's going to be entirely right. There's overlapping situations with different perspectives. In counseling, you can also jump from one situation to the next very quickly. Uh, As one idea comes to mind, another comes to mind. So we may be dealing with multiple topics very quickly. Uh, Like counseling, prophecy also shows us that Moods change quickly. Things are helpful or hopeful. Uh, They go from hot to cold, tender to scorn. They go back and forth again and again. God uses the analogy of a broken marriage throughout the prophets to describe his relationship with Israel. And so far in this class, we've covered the Pentateuch. We've covered the pre-exilic histories. We've covered wisdom literature And today, as we enter into the prophets, uh, we need to remember where we've been, at least in the last couple of weeks, to come to this point. So the prophetic books begin in what we would call the middle of the 8th century B.C. Okay, so um, we'll just put a timeline here. Anybody remember, as we covered 1st and 2nd Kings last week, the timeline of 1st and 2nd Kings? talking like the end of David's reign through the exile to Babylon. So, I don't know, a couple hundred years. So Kings is about 700 to 400 BC. 
it's really important that we have it, the background of First and Second Kings as we come to the prophets, because a lot of what the nation was going through is summarized in First and Second Kings through the reigns of the good kings and the bad kings, the good na- times of the nation and the bad times of the nation. Here you go. <laughs> Bye, have fun, Grammy. <laughs> okay. Man, I tell you what, my arm is killing me. <laughs> She's getting big. <laughs> so cute, though. <laughs> um, so as we, we mentioned earlier, when we go to prophecy, we begin by looking backward and then we look forward. As we compare specifically the promises of God through the covenants of the Old Testament, it's helpful to think about what God has promised beforehand and what he is promising after. Okay. People, when they think of prophecy, they're often thinking of it in the light of foretelling or what's to come in the future. But it's not just foretelling, right? That's not the place to start with prophecy. The place to start with prophecy is in the foretelling, where the prophets are being forthright about the present light of what was promised in the past. But the prophets do turn to foretelling. They look forward and they promise one of two things, salvation or judgment. Okay, so in foretelling, when you think about what's going to come, think salvation or judgment. And even as you're thinking about the foretelling, think about salvation or judgment. Those two concepts being key to uh, prophecy. One thing that we can make of the prophetic books of the Old Testament is that they are complex. Okay? They are complex. Right? Oftentimes when we come to them, uh, like the book of Isaiah, we have a large volume of writing. And we may be trying to think through what is the single big idea in this particular book. You know what I've realized as I've studied the book Isaiah? There's not just one particular big idea. There are multiple big ideas. We're going to talk through at least nine big ideas or big themes that we can see in prophecy. So uh, I think this is in your handout. I want to give you some interpretive principles for studying the Old Testament prophets. So uh, if you don't have a handout, I'll write this down for you. Okay, so uh, we have seven different ideas. Okay, so as we look through prophets, first we need to discern the immediate context. We do so through the structure of the book. The structure of the book, structure or flow. Second, the second principle is that we discern the kind of oracle that is being used. So is this an oracle of salvation? Is it an oracle of judgment? Okay. What is the command that's being brought to play? Third, we need to study the balance between forthtelling, the historical, and the predictive. So, uh, yeah, we'll put it in that light. The historical and the predictive. Number four, the fourth principle, is to determine what kind of language is being used. So, is this poetic? Is it disputation? Is it narrative? So, we think of language, um, and a key to that may be how we think of the style of the writing. Because there's some poetry that is meant to be illustrative. There's also some times where when you see in in quotations, the indentation in your Bible is actually not a cue to poetry, but a- actually di- like discourse or speech. Good morning. Yeah. I think this is for you guys. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the fifth principle of interpretation for prophecy 
is to make sure that we place this text in what I would call overall redemptive history. Okay, so I'm just going to pause on this principle for a second here. Overall redemptive history. What do I mean when I say redemptive history? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is part of it. Okay. Somebody give me the four parts of the Bible. If you were to break the, the Bible into four different parts, what would they be? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Amen. Booyah. The C-R-F-R-R, okay? Or C-F-R. R squared. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Restoration. Okay? The four parts of the Bible's narrative. So when we realize that the Bible is a story, we're particularly highlighting that there's a redemptive history. So what would redemptive history be? Here's the the climax, right? The key event. And we're going to have what's happening before and what's happening after. What's happening before and what's happening after. In the Old Testament, it's it's really easily seen in what's happened before. Okay, But there's not just the promise of salvation for what was before. There is the promise that's pointing to particularly that climax event in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But not only that, there's also the future telling of the kingdom that is to come in restoration. Okay, so redemptive history, as we think about the promises of God, we keep in mind creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and remember that it's not just about the cross, it could also be about the future kingdom to come. And if you put that in light of what these people are particularly facing in the writing of the prophets, in the writing of First and Second Kings, in their history, that really is just amazing to see how God works together through the entirety of the Bible. What could come in Revelation 20 is spoken about in Isaiah. That's amazing. Right? God's consistency throughout all of the writing, all of history. <clears throat> Okay, so that was my my fifth principle. The sixth principle is to uh, be alert of themes, okay? Not just themes. Let me give you something that's helpful here, okay? Recurring themes, okay? Reoccurring themes will be very helpful as you study through the prophets, okay? So we've talked about two, salvation and judgment. There's going to be other things to highlight within particular books. We'll look at some of that in Isaiah today. And the final principle when we're trying to interpret prophecy is then to consider the New Testament. Do that last. There's a reason that that's number seven. Do that last. Think not only about how we see that passage brought up in the New Testament, but how those authors of the New Testament are employing Old Testament passages. As we've been studying through the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings, that has been a, a particular highlight, not just of the prophets, but particularly of the entirety of the Old Testament, how it's been used. My truck is running? Oh. That means that Isla started it. <laughs> Darn remote starters. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. <laughs> it turns off after 15 minutes, so it's, it's all good. <laughs> okay, so we've gotten some principles. Does anybody need a snapshot of this? Right, I'm going to take a picture of it if anybody wants it. After, you can just see me and I'll text it to you. Okay. All right, now we're actually going to dive in to Isaiah. Talked about what prophecy is like. We talked about principles for interpreting. Now, let's consider the book of Isaiah. 
As you were reading through Isaiah this week, did anybody have any particular like portions or parts that you really enjoyed as you were reading through it? Anything that came to light in a new way or maybe just a refreshing highlight of things that you have read in the Bible before? I love when he goes up to the throne room in the beginning. Mm. Isaiah 6? Yeah. Yeah, that was a passage for me as well. Um, I I thought about how at missions banquets, they often use that that passage, right? Who's going to go? And he's like, here I am, send me. That may be a misuse of that passage in some sense. Like Isaiah is following the calling of God to go and be a prophet to the, the nation of Israel, but that calling is not uh, necessarily what we call joyous or momentous. Rather, it's a reverential awe of God's holiness, where he's like, uh-oh, we are sinful people. Ooh, somebody's got to go tell them who's going to do it. Oh, no. Woe is me. I'm going to go. <laughs> right? I like the, I mean, that, but also just the, you know, the burning, like, the visuals that we get, yeah, you know, the burning of the pole, the, yeah. the seraphim, just yeah. all of it. It's... Yeah, super helpful. Amen. Anybody else? Passages that were helpful to you as you were reading Isaiah? Or encouraging or challenging? Maybe two more? Well, I don't know that it falls into either bucket. I just, I, I found it kind of interesting since we covered Kings last week that uh, the large chunk where Sennacherib is trying to destroy Jerusalem and the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 people. Like that passage is, I think, like in, well, it's in Isaiah almost identical, if not identical, to the passage in Kings. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty neat. Okay. Carol, did you have one? No, I'm still lost. (laughs) Okay. Hopefully we can help you get unlost. (laughs) (laughs) okay one more heather did you have anything that you liked in isaiah this week challenging or encouraging okay all right all right (laughs) that's all good appreciate that all right so there are probably multiple passages that we have read or heard within the book of isaiah maybe isaiah 6 with the here i am send me isaiah 7 with the promise of the virgin birth Maybe Isaiah 11 with the promise of the root of Jesse. Maybe even Jesus' usage of Isaiah 60 and 61 uh, in the New Testament through the Gospels. Some passages that you may be reminded of as you come to uh, your Bible reading through the book of Isaiah. But there are lots of things to celebrate. Yes. Truck's still running. Yeah. It just pressed the brake. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Darn remote starters. <laughs> All right, so lots of things that we can cover as we look to the book, but I want to give you two sections to the book of Isaiah. Okay. There's more to the breakdown of the book outside of these two sections, but I think that this is helpful as we study. We have chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. Those are going to be two helpful sections that show us the, the heart of the book. Um, <clears throat> so flip over to Isaiah chapter 1 real quick. Okay. You got your Bible, look at Isaiah 1. We're going to look at Isaiah 1 and 2 briefly and show how this book has these two different portraits. Even within the opening chapters, we can see two different portraits displayed in the book of Isaiah. Matt, can you read Isaiah 1, 1 through 4? The vision... Wait, which one? <laughs> I wasn't sure. Mahal, yeah. And then Joseph, can you read chapter 2? Sure. <laughs> You're going to read verses 1 through 4 as well. Okay. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, 
offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Okay, so when we go there, let's walk through a couple of the principles. What kind of oracle is used right here in Isaiah 1, 1 through 4? Judgment. An oracle of judgment for all of the earth to hear, particularly. So what's the context, right? Verse 1 sets it up as a vision of Isaiah concerning Judah, that is the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, its capital city. And Isaiah's words are datable to the reigns of the kings. Um, So the, the kind of oracle that's in play here is judgment. What kind of literary form is being used? It's poetic, exactly, right? Uh, Listen, I have raised children and brought them up. The ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand, right? Using some sort of illustration to draw out the point. So poetry. Do you think Isaiah is looking forward or backward? Backward. Backward, yeah. I think he is looking backward as well. He's looking back particularly to the Pentateuch. He refers to the Lord's rearing Israel as children, okay, as his children, but says that they've forsaken him. So as in the counseling illustration, God's pain is profound here. He's in pain over what's happening. I wonder if you've ever viewed your own rejection and rebellion against God as something that would cause God pain, that God would say of you, He has forsaken me. She has turned her back on me. It's worth meditating on that idea just for a moment as you think about the grounds of your sin, that sin brings God pain. But chapter two brings us a different introduction to the book, a different portrait of the book. So Matt Joseph, whenever you're ready, if you could read verses one through four for us. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the world of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge the nations, and he shall decide the disputes of many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation, um, sorry, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Let's go through the same sort of questions, okay? So what kind of oracle is being used? Salvation, Salvation and promise. Uh, what's the context? Who's this about? Judah and Jerusalem. Same as in chapter 1, right? Okay. How about what form of literature is being used here? It's poetic again. Is it looking forward or backward? Forward. Forward. Okay. So chapter 1, you have God looking backward at what's happened. Now in chapter 2, He's looking forward to what is to come. And and notice the difference, right? In Jerusalem, that's mentioned in chapter 1, it felt gritty and historical. The Jerusalem mentioned here is an otherworldly kind of Jerusalem. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The biblical scholar's term for this is what we call eschatological. Okay, Eschatological, that means end times. What is to... Uh, coming in the future, the restoration, when God's going to bring a history to a close. So as we think about prophecy, there's there's a few questions that we need to ask. And for the remainder of our time, I'm going to go through three of the principles that we covered in interpreting prophecy. It's going to be the principle of structure, the principle of theme, and the principle of New Testament usage. Okay, so first, let's talk about structure. Okay. Structure is first. 
These two passages are a good springboard to the structure that's going to come in Isaiah. The structure of the book is like a roadmap, right? So we laid out two different roads that we're going to see, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. Throughout the book, and particularly prominent in chapters 1 through 39, are oracles of woe and judgment concerning the historical Jerusalem. So 1 through 39... We have woe and judgment. What do we think chapters uh, 40 through 66 then are? If we have woe and judgment, the other side of that may be? Salvation. Salvation, yeah. Or maybe salvation and redemption. Uh, well, redemption would be that. Salvation and mercy put it that way primarily okay that doesn't mean that they're entirely but primarily we see in the first 39 chapters woe and judgment the second salvation and mercy in chapters 1 through 39 um, he points to particular sins and he points especially to the imminent invasion of the nation of assyria Chapters 1 through 39 are like the first verses of chapter 1. And then in chapter 40 through the end of Isaiah, something changes. Isaiah doesn't address the present. He he doesn't address the current Jerusalem. He's addressing the future version of it. Okay, so not only do we have salvation and mercy, we have the the future of the nation, the future sense. Okay. It sounds a lot more like the beginning verses of chapter 2. And at face value, he's addressing uh, the Jerusalem, which in a century's time would be in exile in Babylon. Remember, we said that there's multiple horizons, so we are looking forward to the eschatological Jerusalem. And the language that he uses in these chapters, especially the final 10, is much too dramatic and grandiose to be referring simply to the small band of Israelites who would return from exile in the 5th and 6th centuries BC. So the swords into plowshares sort of language, that's not just in the, the nation that's going to return in the, uh, the 5th and 6th centuries BC, but especially to the nation that's going to come, the nation of God's kingdom and his people. <clears throat> One of the particular highlights of this is that this nation is not great and mighty, but that it's made up of a key word that we're going to see, the remnant, the remnant of the original. And while the remnant may be small, we can probably even narrow down the idea of the remnant to a single individual, the one that's going to come from Isaiah 52 and 53 and bear the sins for many. Um, in your handout, there is an outline for the study of the book use that for your own personal use. I think that that will be useful to you. Um, But it's important to see how the structure influences what we're covering in the book. So the two oracles, the context of the the nation, uh, the promises of God are in light in that structure. But let's look now to the themes. Okay, so nine different themes uh, that we can see that are recurring through the book of Isaiah. The first is the theme of pride. Okay, theme of pride. Why do God's people get stuck in in sinful situations? Because we're prideful people, aren't we? That's the truth. We are prideful. That's a theme of Israel's pride and, in fact, a theme of humanity in the book of Isaiah. It comes up again and again. The Lord continually addresses it. Think of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. And again, in Isaiah 5, 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There are many more, but behind the rebellion of Israel and of all of the nations and of all of us sitting here this morning is our pride. 
the nation of Israel in many ways is nothing more than an example of humanity in this sense. So as we read through Isaiah and read of their despicable pride and the injustice that it yields, we need to remember that apart from Christ, that is us. The second theme that's recurring throughout Isaiah is trust. The theme of trust. Especially in chapters 7 through 39. Uh, We'll just make this little textual highlight for you. 7 through 39, in light of the, the woe judgments... God is calling these people to trust in him. In chapter 7, the northern kingdom of Israel together with Aram has made war on the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah tells King Ahaz of Judah not to make any foreign alliances and even promises Ahaz a sign. But Ahaz, in a show of false piety, refuses to ask for a sign. And then he proceeds to then move forward toward making allegiances with foreign nations. This theme is also further developed in chapter 31, where we see, it says in verse one, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. The question of trust really reaches its climax when the city of Jerusalem under King Hezekiah. Was Hezekiah a good king, bad king? Good king. Good king. Under a good king, the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the armies of Assyria. And the Assyrian field commander then taunts the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he says to them, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Was there trust in Hezekiah? Should it have been? No, it should have been the trust of the Lord. He, he goes on to say there that Hezekiah responds by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And he goes on to even then taunt the, the idols, the idol gods of Assyria. Where is Hamath and Arped? Where are the gods of the Seravim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? The people have a choice. Their choice is either to trust God or to trust someone else. Gratefully, Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem in this episode, unlike Ahaz, they actually trusted God and God miraculously delivered them. So these chapters of Isaiah remind us that our trust needs to be in God. Third, which is probably one of the most significant, is about God himself. He is the Holy One. This is where I geek out about words a little bit in the Bible. Okay. In Isaiah, 30 times this word is used. This designation is God of the Holy One. Outside of the book of Isaiah... In the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, that term is only used six times. So it's an overarching theme of the book of Isaiah, that God is the Holy One. First, Isaiah calls God the Holy One, again, 30 times. But we get to see this especially probably in chapter 6. And it's not in chapter 6, verse 8. It's actually chapter 6 in verse 3. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. Two he flew. And each one called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy is the Lord God. See his holiness described as not just filling the throne room of heaven here, but the whole earth is full of his glory. It's to be known by everyone, understood by everyone. God's driving purpose is that his greatness would be known and enjoyed by his creatures. That's why he does everything, even saving sinners. Chapter 48, it says, 
For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it to you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You want to learn anything about Isaiah, you get to learn about God himself and his holiness. The fourth is God is the sole and incomparable ruler of creation and history. I think it's important to put soul. He's a sole ruler of creation and history. This theme becomes particularly important beginning in chapter 40 and then through the end. It's highlighted at least from 40 to 48 in a few significant ways. Here's one from 40, 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Nobody. Right. Uh, 45. Verses 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is none beside me. Beside me there is no God. I will equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. Isaiah 45 in verse 21, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved in all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. So it's not just about his holiness. It's about his sole claim over all of creation and history. Number six, uh, or did we go to number five? We did not. God is the sole redeemer. Soul redeemer. <clears throat> Notice in the last passage how God being the only ruler of the world means that he can be the only savior of the world. That's another prominent theme, right? Isaiah 54 verses 5 and 8. In verse 5 it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. Verse 8 says, In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So we can see in his holiness he's hiding himself from us, and in his love exposing us to himself and redeeming us. He often refers to himself repeatedly as the Holy One and Redeemer of his people in the book. Then number six is the remnant. I just feel like that's such an epic word. Remnant. Right? It's, it maybe gives light to something that would look to the world so minute so like insignificant but the fact that God like God's promises what we've seen in the Old Testament right, as we walk through Genesis when the world was going well and then they rebelled it was down to one guy <laughs> one guy and his family right again and again we saw it like three or four times in Genesis in Exodus right the nation of Israel being it basically enslaved by and dictated to from one single king and what's God's purpose to work through that one single king to show one how improper his response is to God but then two God's power and might through these people through one people and how are they led through measly weak Moses right the guy that's like God don't let me go and talk to them I can't, I don't have the words. So he goes, okay, I'll give you Aaron. <laughs> so Moses and Aaron, two people leading this nation that would become millions of people to then go and show God's promises. All hinging on not a large mega church style example of faithfulness, but the faithfulness of just a few. 
the remnant, who does God save? It's clear. He doesn't save everyone, right? There are those that are going to belong to him and those that don't belong to him. Through the course of Isaiah, it becomes clear that he means to save just a few for his purposes. Isaiah 10, verses 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Think about how he's looking back to the promises of God in Jacob. You can also see Isaiah 28, verse 5. But what's interesting is that it becomes clear specifically in chapters 56 through 59 that even the remnant still sin, that they're not entirely holy before God. In fact, the true remnant appears to be a single remnant. In Isaiah's call, Isaiah is told that, the, that God will bring destruction until everything is laid waste. Everything. Everything except Notice this, Isaiah 6.13. Flip your Bible there. Isaiah 6.13. Whoever gets there first, go ahead and read it. Oh, Michelle! (laughs) 6.13. Though a tent will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth where the oak that leaves a stump when found. The holy seed is the sun. Oh, that last part right there. Everything is going to be laid waste except for what? The holy seed. Okay, guys, nerd out with me for a second here. What's the promise of Genesis 3.15? We've got what? The serpent and the woman, right? The seed of the serpent, good or bad, friends? Bad. The seed of the woman, good, right? A single seed is going to rise out. And Genesis 3.15 describes that single seed as doing what? As crushing the head of the serpent. Hey, Miss May. <laughs> I like how her outfit has changed since I left home. <laughs> it's, no, it's the same. You have to dress over. I know, I know. <laughs> You're so cute, babe. <laughs> hey, it works, right? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, right? We, we highlighted this. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Is this a multiplicity? No. It's a single seed. Single seed coming from the root of Jesse. So what should, who is it that is going to... Um, Come to it. Who's going to have the spirit rest on them? We know from the first half of Isaiah in 9 and 11, that it's a messianic kind of kingly figure. Then in the second half of Isaiah, we discover a little bit more. In number seven, the theme is the servant. This majestic remnant king, the messianic figure is not going to look like the kings of the world, he's going to look like a servant. There's four different songs that are laid out in Isaiah describing the servant. First is Isaiah 42. In verse 1 it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The second song is Isaiah 49, 1-6. through six. I'm going to write these down for yourselves. So Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. The third song is Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. And then I think the most significant song is Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Not only is he going to be the the servant, he's going to be the conqueror. 
is going to be the conqueror. Just after Isaiah 53, God's spirit is going to rest not just on the one who is the suffering servant, but the one who is the conqueror. And the question comes, is this the same individual? And again, we see four conquering songs come to light in Isaiah. The first conquering song is from Isaiah 59, 15 through 21. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The second song of conquering is Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Who says that in the Gospels? Where does he say it in the Gospels? It's when he's laying in the temple and he pulls out the scroll. And he's in the stinking temple, right? He's, he's proclaiming this, this news. The conquering one has come, who's going to come and serve. How did the people respond in the Gospels when Jesus said that? They were mad, right? They were mad. They did, yeah. The third conquering song is in Isaiah 61, 10 through 62, verse 7. And there the conqueror comes as a bridegroom who's going to take his bride away to rescue her. Oh, think about Revelation 20, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bridegroom who has come to rescue. Think of how Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about the bridegroom who washes and sanctifies, redeems the church. And the final conquering song is in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. And that image of conquering is the image of God dealing with sin. It's an image of judgment. He comes to judge. And then the ninth theme is what we call the New Jerusalem. Or you can put the bride. New Jerusalem or the bride. With this servant conqueror in place, the final chapters of Isaiah focus on the New Jerusalem as the new bride, which also is representative of the new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate for the Lord delights in you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. What a glorious vision, right? Think about how Isaiah starts. Judgment. I'll help you out with that. Is that from Maeve? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks, Maeve. <laughs> um, think about how it started. The, the vision of pain and judgment now coming to this new Jerusalem rejoicing. Okay. We've got four minutes. I'm going to try to go through these principles of the New Testament. So if you, if you need a shot of this, take a photo of this for you. Okay, those are the nine themes of Isaiah that are important. The reoccurring themes, not just themes that we see in the entirety of the book. We can make a much larger list, but those those recurring ideas are important. Okay, the third principle we're going to talk about is how the New Testament authors uh, use Isaiah. I got five ideas for you. Four minutes, let's go. Five ideas, four minutes. Idea number one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Idea number one is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. 
And Paul again says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. Paul says that in Romans 15, 12. And he applies this particularly to the person of Jesus. The second thing that we see is that Jesus is called the Holy One. The same designation that was used of God in Isaiah is the designation that's used of Jesus in the New Testament. Back in Isaiah chapter 6, the, the apostle John then goes on to say, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The apostle John said that in his gospel. Isaiah said this because he saw the glory of God in Jesus and spoke about him. Who is the Holy One? It's Jesus. The third is that Jesus is the promised redeemer. He's the promised redeemer. All four of the gospels quote from Isaiah chapter 40 to say that Jesus is the God who has come to give salvific comfort to God's people. So in Luke 3, John the Baptist, who has come to prepare the people for Jesus, explains his role in the words of Isaiah by saying, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, and all mankind will see God's salvation. It's a quotation of Isaiah 40. Jesus is also seen as the suffering servant. In the New Testament, the authors knew that Jesus was the suffering servant that was found in Isaiah 52 through 53. Matthew writes it this way in Matthew 12, 17 and 18. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He is my servant whom I have loved, who I have chosen, and whom I delight. Matthew 12, verses 17 and 18. And principle number five is Jesus is the conqueror. He is the conqueror. In Isaiah 59, we read that, that the promised one will repay each according to what they have done. And in Revelation 22, verse 12, it says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what is done. Who is that? It's Jesus. It's his very words in Revelation 22. There are more examples of this, but this is at least how we can see the New Testament using what Isaiah has promised about God himself, specifically in the person of Jesus. Isaiah does read like the transcript of marriage counseling. You come in, you see what's going on. You've got one example here, another example there. You've got to look back. You've got to look forward. But here's the thing. Unlike most of human marriages, where there's fault on both sides, Christ is the perfect, faithful spouse. And we have been the unfaithful, the hard-hearted ones. But as you read through the book of Isaiah, you come to understand that these things are rich and deep and meaningful, and it helps you appreciate the glory of salvation that's in Christ alone. To understand the New Testament and who Jesus is, you need to read the Old Testament and the prophecies of Isaiah in particular. So what does it mean for Jesus to be holy, to be a redeemer, to be a conqueror? What is sin? Who is God? What is he like? Is he really in control? Isaiah gives us that insight. So I hope that we've given you a good taste of what is in Isaiah this morning. This is just a taste of what you can dive into for the book. Let me pray for us and we can go worship with the rest of the church body together this morning. God, we thank you for your love and your, your mercy. We thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, but that you have sent Jesus to rescue us and to serve us in a way that we could be united to you. And so God, we pray that you would help us to savor today the great gift that we have in knowing you and being known by you. 
We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.